take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. As we continue our introduction into this uh, important book that is often misunderstood and misrepresented, not just among the world, but even believers today have failed to get a grasp on what the Koheleth, the convener of the assembly, the teacher and the pundit, the preacher has to say. In fact, Ecclesiastes is the word Koheleth in the Greek, or excuse me, in the Hebrew, and it is simply to introduce an individual who is not identified in the text, who is described in the text, but not identified to help us grasp the deeper truths of life. It is important as we reflect upon the meaning of, of life, as we reflect upon the meaning of this, I believe, important and critical text of Scripture, we have to be prepared for the storms of life and the troubles of life and the challenges of life and even the redundancy of life with some kind of perspective that can sustain us, uh, whether times are good or whether times are evil. And I truly believe that the author is, is driving that point home in this context. And I want you to know that however you may have arrived this morning and whatever burdens are on your heart, there's an answer, there is meaning, even in the dark times of life, there is purpose, and there's a God over all of that, and that is where the greatest encouragement comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, that song that we just sang, He Will Hold Me Fast. It's a critically important song in, in the lives of God's people. In many ways, it reflects some of the things that the Koheleth begins to speak and address within the context of this Scripture. That song first came to us at First Baptist as I went off to a, a pastor's conference uh, a little bit spent, running on empty, to say the least, with some burdens in my life, and, and it just spoke to my heart, and it reminded me that uh, everyone has a story, and everyone goes through those dry seasons, and, and everyone wonders about the point and the meaning and the purpose of life, and why, God, why? And in such simple words, it, it reminds us that He loves us, He will keep us, he will preserve us. He will hold us fast. I pray that you're encouraged by that this morning. That is the message of the Koheleth, and yet it takes him a while to get there, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Remember, we're trying to frame the book of Ecclesiastes and give you an idea as to how we are going to approach this study. And that's why both last week and today, if you missed last week, go back and listen, and today we'll frame our study, and I pray Give us a better understanding as we begin uh, to uh, dissect the book of Ecclesiastes and take its lessons to heart. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1 in the book of Ecclesiastes. The words of the preacher, the Koleth, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all of the toil of which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. 
The wind blows to the south and, and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow there, they will flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And if there is a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it is already, it has been already in the ages before us, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. As we introduced you to this text last week, we, we noted that that's kind of a, a depressing beginning to a book. It is kind of putting us in a place where we're thinking, well, this ought to go well, the study of Ecclesiastes. How long are you going to take, Pastor Jim? Well, it will take as long as it takes, but you need to hang on to hear the rest of the story and the completion of what this writer, this Koaleth, is trying to communicate to us in the wisdom literature, trying to teach us to live soberly and righteous in this present age, and working out his dilemmas on paper in front of us. And that's a really important understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes. It is notable that in this context, you look at the descriptions of nature as it is, whether it's verse 4 or 5 or 6 or 7, and you begin to recognize that nature continues its, to- its course. There is a, a telos, there is a purpose, there is a design to this world, this, this universe, this cosmos, and nature continues to march on and does what it is designed to do. And then he says, But when it comes to man, they fight it day by day by day by day. If we could just be like the nature and understand the design of God and do it His way, we would would spare ourselves much of this trouble. The reason that the writer writes the book is to prepare us for trouble and to help us to find a perspective that ends in the end of the chapter, and this last two verses, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. May it be so, no matter how tedious our study is, and may God speak to your hearts through His Word. Father, bless us. As again, we open the book this morning, encourage us, challenge us, teach us, and prepare us for whatever it is that lies ahead. Remind us that you know our story. Remind us that you know us when we sit and when we sleep and when we rise and when we're in the way. Remind us that there is a season and a purpose to everything under the heaven. Remind us that there is toil in life. And remind us that perhaps the greatest toil is trying to figure out whether or not our lives count. Remind us that they do. Remind us of our design. Teach us to remember our Creator and the days of our youth. And help us to find a perspective that sustains us in good times and in bad times and all of the time that reflects upon the glory of God 
that reflects upon the beauty and the opportunity that every day presents, and that reminds us that a better day is coming and everything is going to be okay. Remind us the words of the Koleth. Speak and let your people hear, I'd ask, to the Word and your Spirit, in Jesus' name. As we continue our study, I'll remind you that in Acts chapter 17, last week's message, we looked at some of the common philosophies of the day and reminded you that every culture views existence as either cyclical or linear, and they both have real-life implications. If life is secular and it goes on and on and on and nothing really changes except for time, then we fall to this default philosophical position that says life is a vicious circle of insignificance. You're born, you live under the torments of life, and then you die. And of course, if you understand the text of Ecclesiastes, he's saying there's more, but if you reject that, he is saying that if there is no God, then life is just a cruel joke told by an idiot. And life makes no sense. It has no meaning. You cannot find human rights nor dignity in that. But I would remind you that every human being of every culture, of every age, must address some of the biggest questions of life. We called it last week an identity crisis. Who am I and where am I going? I suspect that those are the things that plague us most in life. Why does it matter? What are you doing? Who am I? And what is the end of all of this? And a life without God where nothing changes and it goes round and round and round and there's no point or no purpose leads to a nihilism. It says there is no real value, there is no real belief, there is no real truth. In fact, my life is a joke. We also introduced you to the Hebrew understanding of time, not cyclical, but Linear. A definitive starting point, and we noted that that is in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God. And a definitive point of conclusion that we read in the book of the Revelation, that He makes all things new, and He shall be our God, and we shall be His people. And in between those two points, life happens according to the divine plan of God for His glory alone. And we can live life under this sun, not as some cosmic accident, not in some chaotic kind of way, but knowing that God created us for a purpose. He has mandated us with a purpose. He will fulfill that purpose in us through His Holy Spirit, and that's where we find our dignity and the answer to the deepest questions of life. R.C. Sproul, in dealing with this text and others, coin the phrase, right now counts forever. And that is a linear view of life. It means that whatever is happening in my day, whatever is happening in my life today, in fact, this very moment, is under the divine plan of God. And there is a purpose behind it, even if I can't find it, even if I can't know it, even if I can't discernment. God is doing something in time and space. Does my life have meaning? Isn't that the big question of Ecclesiastes? It's what the author, it's what the writer, 
It's what the convener of the assembly sets out to do in the context of Ecclesiastes. I'll remind you, Sao in his text and commentary on Ecclesiastes says, if the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole is any reflection of the author's inner struggles, his debates with himself, one should not be surprised that various perspectives are considered at once, even contradictory ones. He reminds us that when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, we need to understand that we have been given a glimpse into the mindset and into thinking and into that internal dialogue that is taking place in the coalesce life. He's trying to figure this out. He's trying to ask and answer the question, does life have any meaning? What is the point of all of this? And he shifts back between points, different points of view, and, and, and in some of those points of view, we're a little bit depressed, and in other times, there's this glimmer of hope, but he is trying to work this out in his own mind, and I suggest you do as well. It may not be in public, it may, may not be for everyone to hear, it may not be for everyone to see but you're trying to figure it out, and you're trying to work it out, and you're trying to make sense of life. And and that's what the author, the coalesce, probably, at least in its descriptors, Solomon, is trying to help us understand. Interestingly, the book is kind of divided into two specific halves. In the first half of the book, he is wrestling in this inner dialogue with the meaning of life. And and in the second half, he draws some conclusions as to how to live an ethical, godly, moral life in spite of all of the questions that will remain unanswered in our lives. And it's really important that we understand the difference between ethics and morality and our culture today. Our culture today is, is a culture that lives their life and defines their reality in a cyclical kind of way. They have cut out a transcendent God. They have cut out an absolute morality. They have cut out a, a clearly determined ethos or, or ethics for life. They'll have none of that. And, and every issue that they come to is an issue that is resolved outside of God. We see this in the great Roe Way debate today right? If there is no God, if there is no purpose, if life is senseless and meaningless, what difference does it make whether we kill a child in the womb or not? You understand that? See how that flows? But if you think that life begins at a definitive point and ends at a definitive point, and that's all under the sovereign grace of God, well, that changes your perspective a little bit. That's the the linear viewpoint and perspective on life. The problem is when you're worldview is cyclical in nature, you spend more time discussing morality, what is happening in our world, and less time studying ethos, what should be or ought to be happening in our world. For if there's something that ought to be done that is outside of ourselves, and the world has no tolerance for that. So how do they measure this Roe-Wade debate? It's all politically measured who will vote, what way, and, and how can we negotiate this? How can, how can we address all of this? In fact, if 70% of the people or 50% or 40% think so, then it is so. Well, that misses the awe of Scripture. It rejects the design of God. It misses everything that the Coalath is trying to bring to our attention. But that is where we're stuck today. I am sick and tired of surveys. I don't care what you think. There is an absolute truth. There is an absolute purpose to life, 
And that life and absolute purpose can be found in nothing else than the God who sits on the throne. He makes the rules. He says, mine. He says, this is the way it ought to be. And you can choose to ignore it, or you can choose to embrace it. But sooner or later, that is fleshed out and the real issues of life. What do I do now? And that toil is wearisome, that inevitable working out life and living out life in good times and in bad times under the sun. How do I make any sense of this? If you flip quickly to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I want to show you a verse that really sums up the battle. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29, the writer of the coalesce says, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. In a moment of lucidity, the coalesce says, You know what? This is bigger than me. This is bigger than my life. This is bigger than my own significance. It's bigger than my pains and my hurts and my fears. God has made man upright. Oh, now we're starting to become a little bit more definitive. God has done this, but in the context of what He has done, man rejecting God has done what? They have sought out many schemes to try and answer the question, does my life have any meaning, and what is the point of all of it? And I'm going to suggest, in fact, I'm going to tell you, even though you don't like it, that every single one of you have gone through this scheming to try and figure out a better way or to fall prey to sinful thinking, trying to find, define, and identify the real meaning of life. Even when we look at the Coalath and, and some of his pessimistic approaches, you and I have been there and done that, and we'll probably revisit that yet again. You say, oh, not me, liar. Liar. As much as we want to, we are living in the here and now, and God is transcendent, and that is such a difficult thing for our finite minds to grasp. And when we're grasping it and we lose our perspective, we fall prey to all of these different perspectives and all of these different pitfalls in our thinking and in our lives. I had a professor way back in my first graduate degree, Dr. Ronald Hawkins. He said something that has always stuck with me in his anthropological diagram, and that doesn't mean anything to you, but he said, everyone has a stylistic approach to sin. I thought, that, that's really interesting. He said, every one of our personalities lends itself to a besetting sin. Every one of our personalities lends itself to, to temptations that maybe not everyone faces. We're all different, but there's a stylistic approach to sin. Every one of us knows what our weaknesses are. Everybody knows what our necessary default position is. And he said, if you can figure that out, you're halfway home and resolving the biggest issues of life. But what he also said is, no one's exempt from this. Everybody has a stylistic approach to sin. Everybody prone to wander to ask questions, and to challenge. 
question this morning is, what's yours? Well, we have several options to choose from, at least in the book of Ecclesiastes. We have the option of the cynic, we have the option of the hedonist, and we have the option of the apologist. I don't want to spend the bulk of our time trying to dissect what these things really are and, and what they really mean. The cynic, as we know it, as someone who is a fault-finding, captious critic who looks for all of the objections to life, who is hypercritical, who stresses all of the flaws of life and all of the failures of life, and he fixates on meaningless things that really don't matter and the big scope of things, and he is so self-interested and self-focused in life that nothing is ever good enough. They are always the victim. You know people like that. Oh, by the way, you've played that role sometimes, right? Everybody hates me. Nobody loves me. I'm going to go eat worms, right? Everyone's been down in that place where, where we just play the role of this cynic and, and we think that life is just empty. What is the point of all of this? Anyhow, it is completely and utterly meaningless. It results in a pessimistic outlook on everything. We find the cynic speaking from time to time. As the writer of Ecclesiastes, the Colette works out his thoughts. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving or chasing after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has great experience of wisdom and of knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive that this is also but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I've done it better than everybody else, and I've come up with the same empty answer. What is the point? All is vanity and vexation, a striving after the wind. Look at chapter 2. In chapter 2, he talks about all of his earthly accomplishments, and he says in verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, my, my labor, my efforts, and this was my reward for all of my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I expended in doing so, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. We will look closely at chapter 2. This is a man… was at the pinnacle of earthly existence. Whatever I wanted, I had. And it was nothing. You hear the voice of the cynic? Look at verse 16, chapter 2. For of the wise, as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. Whether I'm I'm wise or a fool. What does it really matter in the long run? Nobody remembers. 
how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. And I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, that he will be the master for all which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. So I saw that there's nothing better, that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? It gives us a clue into the mind of the cynic. It gives us a clue as to how he came to these conclusions about the emptiness of life. He was trying to figure out the meaning of life without that eternal transcendent kind of perspective. And as he looked at this world and made the most of his opportunities, he realized it was a world of despair because it was a world without God. And a world without God is meaningless. And that's exactly where he comes from as he plays the role of the cynic. And he comes to a place of despair and he realizes that he's a creature of the dirt. And he comes and he goes. And his life is defined by the dash in between the year of his birth and the year of his death on a tombstone someday. And he says, what's the point in all of that? Do you hear the voice of the cynic? Do you hear what he's saying here? Verse 22, perhaps we see a glimmer that he's saying, you know what? Maybe I'm trying to find the answers to questions that can never be answered. Maybe, just maybe, I'm looking in all of the wrong places. Maybe I should just rejoice in my work or toil and realize this is my life. Make the most of the opportunity. From time to time, as we play the role of the cynic, we can easily spiral into that same kind of thinking. We go through tragic events, we scream at God. He understands. We go through long periods of drought and desert areas where we're thirsty for something, and God is silent. I love the transition that takes place from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The prophets remind us that God was speaking, but His voice was rare, rare and and he hadn't spoken in 400 years. You say, I know what that's like. Where, where is he? We get cynical. He doesn't care. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know anything about me. I'm just a creature of the dirt. I will come and go. What? Why does it even matter? It's easy to get into that cyclical routine of the cynic. And there is a role for pessimism and cynicism that spills over into sinful existence. You ought to ask questions. You ought to desire proof. You ought to say, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense to me. But when your whole world is characterized by that, what other conclusion can you come to other than, what a meaningless existence? 
suicide post-COVID has increased exponentially. Not just with young people, but people across the spectrum of life. Because after everything was taken away, their livelihoods and their freedoms and their health and everything else, they came to the place of, so what's the point? No one's different than another person, and we all turn to dust. We're creatures of the dirt. What a sad commentary on our culture. And what starts as good by way of questioning becomes evil and leads to nothing but despair. The cynic. Boy, it's so easy for us to come to church and take the cynic to task. My faith is so much bigger than yours. Baloney. You've been down this road. No one's ever asked God, what are you doing? Why are you doing? What's the point? You've never asked Him that? Then you're just out of touch with reality. Maybe you never said it, but see, we get the inside scoop on what's going on in this guy's mind. How would you like the world to be exposed to the questions that you're wrestling with right now? doesn't seem real appealing to me. Everyone would be a critic. We are of the cynic, just trying to find a way. It's a scheme of man to try and manage the heartache of life under the sun. Then, of course, you have the hedonist. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of his toil and labor. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He has given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give it to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. He was almost there. He he was almost there. He said, enjoy the good gifts of God. And then He says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. All is vanity and vexation of spirits. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in its time. And also, He had put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. And I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, and nothing can be added to it, nor nothing taken from it. God has done it, so the people fear before Him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. As he reflects on this in the passage of Scripture of the hedonists, we look at what he says in verse 6 of chapter 4, better is a handful of quietness and two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. He's driving towards a place of contentment. Verse 9 of that same chapter 2 are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. But if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and the threefold cord is not quickly 
broken. He's saying enjoy your relationships, enjoy, enjoy the efforts of your toil, enjoy the good things in life, take pleasure in life. Chapter 8, verse 7, the hedonist writes, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? We have no control over the future, and whatever trouble lies ahead or heavy on us. No man has power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All of this observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When I had man had power over man to his hurt. What is he saying? He's almost home as he plays the role of the hedonist, the lover of pleasure. And he dissects life, and he says, now listen, let's just focus on the good things. Let's focus on the blessing things. Let's not worry about tomorrow or, or the future. Let's just enjoy life. The hedonism of our culture today would teach us, live for the moment, grab all the gusto that you can. But when we look at the hedonist in his writing or, or in his words that he uses, he wrestles through these things in his mind and saying, life is a vapor, it's a breath, it comes and it goes, and it does so, so quickly. That's why he says later on towards the end of the chapter or the end of the text that young people that remember their Creator in the days of their youth. This is, this is going to go by faster than you ever thought. And you've heard that from your parents, and you're thinking, yeah, whatever, but whatever. And the gray hairs who are sitting in the room today know that that's exactly what happens. Life is a vapor. It comes and it goes, and it's faster than you ever thought in your youth. So what is the point of all of this? Now, some have tried to uh, glorify or at least make righteous this, this hedonistic kind of notion of life, just, just enjoy things, but it has turned into this, this willful ignorance where we don't talk about hard things and we don't say hard things and we don't deal with hard things because life is just good. Just be happy and be good. How's that worked out for most of you? It doesn't. Bobby Knight, Hall of Fame basketball coach, wrote a book about the power of negative thinking. He says, these are the kind of people who will look on a pile of garbage today and say, I'm just going to ignore that. I'm not going to let that ruin my day. I'm not going to let that bother me. He said, those are the people who get up in the morning as the sun rises and shines its light on the same pile of garbage. You just can't pretend it's not there. Some of us live that way. And let's go back to the cynic. That's not me. Well, maybe you're the hedonist. Maybe you're out of touch with reality in the opposite direction, or maybe you just can't handle that life sometimes is, is difficult. Life sometimes is a challenge. John Piper himself has made a career out of talking about Christian hedonism, about this reality that, that we ought to live life based on this pleasure principle and get the most out of life with the goal of taking pleasure in God. Well, it sounds good on the outside, but it doesn't always work out that way. Piper builds this Christian hedonism on this notion of Augustine, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. 
It's an optimistic approach where the glass is half full and, and not half empty. But it's built on a notion that everything is temporary, and in the bad things there is no purpose. There's only purpose in the good things, but that defies what he speaks to in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And things become beautiful because even in the bad things, God is working, and you can't ignore those things, and you must address those things, and you must speak of those things, but nobody wants to, particularly in our world today. Don't tell me what's broken I want to live in this blissful kind of life where everything's roses. You lay your head on the pillow at night and you realize it's not. Who have I fooled? And you haven't fooled anyone. Christian hedonism says life is meaningless in itself, but God miraculously blesses us with the ability to enjoy it anyway. That's incoherent. Life is meaningless, but He gives us the ability to enjoy it. That's halfway home. That's that's not home. That's not what the author is driving at. Life is not meaningless. And sure, there are times that He's given you good things to enjoy, but life is not meaningless. At the end of the day, there's an order to life. And the order to life is clear in Scripture. We're to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. Only in the pleasurable moments? No. No, even in the times of cynicism where there are no answers and we're crying out to God, please, begging Him, do something. Do something, please. So we wrestle with that. We're to love Him, not to find our life in pleasure. What does it mean to love Him? Keep His commandments. Isn't it interesting that that's exactly how the Koleth ends the book? All has been said. What is the conclusion? Fear God and what? Keep. Keep His commandments. Jesus says, these things have I spoken to you while I'm still with you. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The cynic and the hedonists are on separate pages the conclusion remains the same. For the hedonist, life is hard sometimes, and they don't know what to do with it. For the cynic, just waiting for the next bad thing to happen. And both of them are missing out on the real reason of life, on the peace of God that passes understanding. And they're being troubled and afraid on both sides of the coin, I really believe as we study the book of Ecclesiastes, we must reflect and study Ecclesiastes as an apologist who's doing a masterful job at infinitum ad absurdum, a masterful job of pointing out how when we live life on our terms, whether it's the cynic or the hedonist, conclusion that we come to will be a ridiculous conclusion because we're leaving out the things that matter most. 
time and time throughout the context of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's almost like a light bulb goes on or, or the koaleth reaches above the sun into the clouds, into that transcendent and says, but there's more. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added, nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that the people fear before Him. He's done what? He's given us the good things to enjoy. He's given us the hard things for purpose. But He is behind everything that happens under the sun. It takes us to a transcendent perspective that is bigger than the life as we know it today. So better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil, striving after the wind, he says in chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 18, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil of which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. And everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, for this is the gift of God. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. In good times and in bad times, there is joy. There's a sense of contentment and peace that everything is going to be okay. For this individual, they have come to the conclusion that God has spoken, and God is dealing with life on His own terms, and we as human beings do not have the ability to grasp the meaning of why God is doing what He's doing, but must grasp the significance that He's doing it. And as an apologist, he's saying there's nothing here under the sun that can help. You have to look beyond the sun. And God is doing this for a reason and a purpose, and there's a time and a purpose for everything under the heaven. And I know immediately this morning, and it happens to me, because we all have a stylistic approach to sin. We all find ourselves in these extremes and back and forth and forth and back. But how is this going to be good? How's what He's given me even, even remotely close to good? You don't understand my life. This, that's a problem. You don't understand the author of life. That's the apologist. We have to look beyond the imminent, and we have to look at the transcendent, and we have to know that there's a God who is there who's overseeing all of the affairs of men, but there is a God who is here who whispers in our tears, who reminds us in our pleasures, I did that, trust me. And that's the role of the apologist. And that's, in my opinion, what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to ultimately get to as he pours out his heart and gives us a glimpse into his life, the wreck that had become. Tremper Long makes it very clear, though, that even when life is hard, we cannot deny that the Coalesce is merely playing a philosophical game and arguing that he truly feels the pain and anxiety that he expresses so strongly. He says, oh, now, now remember, this isn't a game that an apologist plays to build the worst-case scenario so that he can present the best-case scenario. No, this is a man who is truly feeling the pain and the anxiety and the weight of life, and he's trying to make sense over all of it. Don't forget the human dimension and the man who is writing the words that we hear. 
David Hubbard says, everything is so utterly puzzling that it looks empty and hollow and futile. Life is not what it seems nor what we want it to be. Not only is everything vanity, but it is the vainest kind of vanity, the most futile brand of futility, which means that the full meaning of life is totally beyond our reach. And our quest for understanding is marked by the worst sort of futility. And the apologist says, so then take into consideration the transcendent God who does all things in a time and a season and for a purpose for His glory. And He does it to expose the falsehoods, the traps that you fall into. And He argues that the human comprehension of the world is always going to be limited at best. And the only hope for the human futility is to find a place for God. We're reminded in the book of Ecclesiastes that the more things change, the more they say the same. And I'm here to remind you that every one of us at times plays the role of the skeptic, the pessimist. What are you doing? Every one of us plays the role of the hedonist, just ignoring and not dealing with the hard difficulties of life. Pretend they're not even there, Pastor Jim. Don't even look that way. But they will bite you eventually, and the garbage heap begins to stink. And then you got to deal with it. The man who truly finds hope and promise is the one who can put it all into perspective and understand that although every single generation of every single age has to deal with the same question, does my life have any meaning? There's an answer to that, and that's what the apologist offers to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. So, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Better that you understand this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In good times and in bad times, in those lengthy dry seasons, when God doesn't seem to even know we exist we cannot hear the sound of His voice, and the Bible makes no sense. Find a place of quietness and know that behind the scenes God is doing something, and He has no obligation to tell you what He's doing, but He's doing something for His glory. So fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And the rest? The rest is scary. He's going to bring every deed into judgment. Hey, you know that time when you were going through the valley of death, when you were, you were a cynic and a pessimist and angry? Let me tell you what I was doing in your life back then. Hey, remember those times that I blessed you abundantly and you were just worried about what was going to happen to the blessing? Remember he talks about this man who accumulates all of this stuff and now has to leave it to someone and he's terrified. What if they're a fool? What if they're a fool? What does it matter? He is taking us down this path of reminding us that there's a place in life that we can find contentment, but it's not when things are going well. It's not when things are at their worst, but it's always 
when we keep this transcendent perspective that God is on the throne and everything's going to be okay. That is not just a slogan. And I've learned the hard way. That's hard to hang on to in life sometimes. It's easy for me to slip into the role of a cynic. I have your emails. I know it's easy for you. It's easy to slip into this, this, this hedonist, I'm just going to put these blinders on and life is good and there's no problems in the culture and oh yeah, baloney. Or we can look at life and all of its brokenness and know there's nothing we can do to fix it. But there's a place that we can turn with the God who created this world for order has promised to make all things new. So better is one handful with a lot in life, good or bad, with quietness and contentment, and to continue to strive for, I need more than that. See, He has given us what we need, and our hearts are not in rest until we find our rest in Him. It reminds me, sometimes it haunts me. <laughs> the words of Job. He was a cynic. He was a hedonist. He was an apologist. I spoke things I didn't understand. (laughs) And I see a little bit more clearly today. That is the point of Ecclesiastes. That is the point of your life. That is the point of your God. What is your perspective this morning? Lord, help us in our perspective. For we find it is far easier at times to take the path of the skeptic and cynic or the hedonist. not the path that brings us home. As we all encounter and ask the deepest questions of life, what is the point? We've uttered things that we cannot understand, things too lofty for us. Make sense of our life, Father. Teach us to find our rest in you alone. Remind us that you know the end from the beginning. Give us the faith and our unbelief to believe that you make all things new and glorious in your time. Show us your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.